Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Leon Miller. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. I'd like to invite you this morning to come with me on a journey. And it's my prayer that at the end of our journey, each of us will rejoice that God is able and he wants to change us. Do you rejoice in that now even? Mm. And at that destination, we can have faith that God's creative power is a promise of what he can do in us today, right today, in the days and weeks ahead. But also, it's a promise that he can one day recreate us. And how good is that news? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can hold it. But we also see, Lord, that you have spoken to us in nature, in what you've created. And we ask this morning, as we look at both of those things, that we'll be able to acknowledge at the end that you are our creator. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our journey, I think, can really only start at one place. Because all that follows depends on this first step in our journey. The journey's beginning has this sign up that says deoxyribonucleic acid, or we know it as DNA. Let's have a look at the starting point, this DNA starting point, and see what it's all about. The DNA molecule is made up of six molecules that join together to form that double helix that you've seen. If you want to get your mind spinning, start reading and trying to understand what all of this is about. It is amazing, just amazing. That the God who created those jumping spiders and the parrots with all of their colours and their design, and us, was able to create that just by speaking. Those little bars that you can see across with colours, they fit together, and it's on those that there are messages, if you like. And all that joins together on that, that double helix, but we'll talk more about it a little further on. That double helix there, the DNA in it, because it's... That is the DNA in that double helix. Carries the instructions for, for our growth, our development, our functioning, 
reproduction. The whole lot is all there in that. It's amazing. Frank, the builder, when he's going to build, he has a set of plans. And it tells him exactly what to put, how long to make it, exactly where to put it, Mel. That's what plans do. And here's the plan. But the amazing thing is about this plan is that even though the instructions are there, you have to have somebody to interpret the plans for you. And in that DNA, that is also there, something that can read the message. I can pick up a book of Spanish. doesn't mean a thing to me. I can see the words. I can see their letters. doesn't mean anything. These instructions are what caused that one cell that was you and me, that one cell that came from our mother and father to start developing. Most DNA, pretty well all of it, but not all of it, is located in the nucleus in our body's cells. And so there you can see, and of course I'm going to ask you as you come out to tell me exactly what was on that screen and what it means. Not. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's just our attempt, science's attempt, to describe what a cell is all about and what it looks like. And in the centre there you can see that greyish section in the centre That's the tangle of of DNA, the chromosomes, right there in the centre of the cell, where the cell can protect it against what might come in from the outside. Every cell in my body is the same as the other in terms of the DNA that is there. Yes, those cells have started to specialise. If you look down the bottom of the screen, you can see there on the left-hand side, there's an epithelial cell. Muscle cells, the next one. Look at the difference in the shape of them. And then we've got a, a nerve cell. Got all these little dendrites that stick out the end and allow these messages to fire between them and the next one. And there's some connective tissue, the cell there. So our cells all start off the same. And then little by little in the development, they start to specialise. Till eventually, heart cells only always look like heart cells. Amazing. It's amazingly small DNA. However, if you look at the DNA from all the cells in your body and line it up, if you took them all at least, put them end to end, as small as they are, remembering that they're tiny, you'd have a thin, thin, thin string that would go all the way to the sun and back 32 times. That's a little bit of distance from here to the sun, but try 32 times. And yet in spite of the differences between us as we sit here today, all the differences that are there, the sound of our voice, what we like eating, how we look, how we do things, all of that, 99% of our DNA at least to scientists, looks just the same. Imagine what's in that last 1% that makes the difference. But I'm sure there's a whole lot more to it that you don't understand. One of the things that DNA does is to organise some replacements. Now, your intestine, these are approximate. It could be a little bit less, it could be a little bit more for each of these, but this will give you some idea. Our intestines 
I suppose because of all that's going on, there's the acids that are coming through and things that we eat that we shouldn't eat and so on, and our intestines, the, this, the lining of our intestines is replaced every three days. So the DNA is very busy in our intestinal lining, replicating new cells that are coming there. The old ones, they're gone. Taste buds, they do a little bit better, 10 days. Our skin, the epidermis, 15 days. And you perhaps have seen that if it's really dry and you brush it, you maybe even see a little bit sort of coming off. Red blood cells, they do even better, four months. Your skeleton, my skeleton, 10% is replaced every year. Next one's interesting, isn't it? Fat cells, eight years. Now, don't, don't take it that you've got to wait for eight years to have an effect either way, but it's eight years for those to change. So they get an eight-year life. The lens in our eyes lasts a lifetime. Isn't that amazing? So what I had when I was born and I was developing, that lens that developed those little cells, and once they developed, they are there for a lifetime. And the enamel on our teeth, likewise. It's there for a lifetime, but it's actually dead. It's not like the, our lens and our eyes that is alive. It's being fed, but the enamel on our teeth is not. We saw across the bottom of the screen before those different types of cells. We've got about 210 different types of cells that make up us as humans. And yet just keep in mind that all of those 210 different types of cells all began with just one cell, the first cell that was us. And bit by bit it developed and eventually the message in the cell was don't make that nose any bigger, it's just the right size, stop there. And it did because that's what God said. We can read a DNA sequence like letters in a book. We know the sequence for a human. That's enough information, check this out, to fill about 1,200-page books. But there's so, so much more that science doesn't know about our DNA. But God knows because he spoke it into existence. Part of DNA, part of the DNA um, double helix is a length called a gene. You've heard some of these terms, just so you get a bit of a picture, it's a gene. And each of those genes, part of the double helix, is coded to do a certain task. It might be to make our protein, insulin, that we need, and all sorts of other things. As humans, we've got some 20 to 25,000 genes. That's groups of DNA on the double helix. The genes influence what we look like on the outside and what we look like or what happens on the inside. Then you've got chromosomes. All these little double helixes join up, curl up together. Human beings have got 23 pairs of these chromosomes. Pairs because one set from the father, one set from the mother, and so on. And these chromosomes are constantly dividing to produce new cells, except in places like our eye and our enamel on our teeth. 
They're key to the part of the process of copying who we are. Have you ever thought why it is that you've got a, a mole? I've got plenty of them, I can, I can understand this. That it's there, even though it's being replaced eventually, as you saw, that it's still there. Why doesn't it sort of come off and it's nice and new? It's because the cells in the mole say, we are mole cells, and we've got to make more mole cells when the old ones are dying. That's how it works. A genome, you've heard the term genome, is just the total collection of all the chromosomes, the DNA, the whole thing. If we printed out the 33.2 billion pairs, you've got the pairs that we talked about before and you can see them there on the screen. If we printed them all out and we started reciting each of those, the names of those, one second per letter, it would take it 24 hours a day and a whole century to say them. That's all the detail that's there. Can you, can you understand that? I can't. I can't. But it says to me that we are made amazingly by our Creator. Scripture says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. All of those things, simply by God speaking, as we said to the children, just by speaking. It doesn't make sense. But it makes even less sense to me to think that it just evolved. It just suddenly evolved. When we think of things that have information, that have design, the fans that are spinning, took somebody to design them, to make them as a result of that design. I believe in a God who spoke and was created. All living things had DNA that would give direction to their development and function, all by God speaking. Well, it's time to leave this part of our trip and go to the next part. I want you to think about singing. You did a pretty good job this morning, I thought, seeing there's not too many of us here today. Ever thought about what's involved? Why, why do we have, when Anna was up there playing today, why did she do the introduction? Tell me. Why do we have an introduction? Frank? Pardon? Well, she did, but, but why do we bother to have an introduction? Well, what's the purpose of it? Does it sort of make us feel good in worship? Well, I hope it does that too. What's the purpose of an introduction? Well, let's try it out. Okay, now what I want you to do is I want you to sing Jesus of me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You know that one? All know it? You sure? Okay, so I'm going to be the conductor, so I'm going to count one, two, three, four, and then when I go the next beat, that's when you start, when I really move my hand forward, all right? So here we go. You're going to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's all you're going to sing, then you can stop. But you all need to start. Okay, one, two, Well done. 
that was pretty good. But there's a bit of a trick with it. I listened as you started, and there was a little bit of hesitancy. Where's the note? Where do I actually start? Now, some people are pitch perfect. This means that if you say to them, sing middle C, they can just sing it and get it right on the note. Exactly. Most of us mortals have to have some music or somebody else or a a tuning fork that we can listen to to do it. Have you ever thought how amazing it is? We hear unapplying the introduction and then it goes to our ear goes up to our brain, I'm assuming this is what it all happens, what is happening, goes to our brain, which sends a message down to our vocal cords, but not just to there, it sends them down to our abdomen because we need a bit more air to start singing. And then we open our mouths, and unless we're tone deaf, what note do we sing if the note that she is playing to start on is C? What note do we sing? C. Now, you tell me how that happens. I, have, I can describe what I think happens, but how, how, how do my vocal cords know to come right in on C? Why doesn't it come to C sharp? Well, it does with me sometimes too, but how does that happen? I can only say that, to me, it says so much about God's creative power, that all of that... Coordination coming to our ear, hits our eardrum, those little little bones in our ear vibrate, it goes to the cilia and sends the message up to our brain and it's going on all the time. And yet God just created that by speaking. Put it all in our DNAs, right back there in our DNA, right back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. In nature... There's two types of colour. The one that we're most familiar with is the one on the left. There you can see that Major Mitchell. And he's looking pretty good, isn't he? He's really looking good. And if you look at his feathers under a microscope, it's because he's got, as you can see at the top there, pigmented colour. It's in it. So if you're painting a picture and you've got some paint, or you're painting a wall, whatever colour it is, or you're looking at a rose, you've got colour that's actually in whatever it is, pigmented colour. But the little peacock spider that is just that two, three, four mils long, amazing, just that small, he has a different sort of colour production and it's called structural colour. Structural colour? It's not colour that's actually in the product, if you like. It's because of what the light is doing. Now, yes, you'll say to me, yes, when we see green, it's because all the other colours are absorbed and it's only green that's reflected back to our eyes. That's true. That's true. But structural colour is different because when the light hits the structure, it reflects back to us certain colours that the structure is doing. Have a look at this. Now, this is not from a jumping spider, not from a peacock spider. It's from a Ulysses Butterfly that lives up in the north of Australia. Look at those scales. These are microscopic size scales that we're looking at now. And if you have a look from even where you're sitting, you'll see the sort of little lines on them. 
And what happens is when the light hits those structures, those little scales, it reflects back to us the light that comes on the angle from those. So some of it goes off another direction or cancels out and the other comes back to our eye. Do you have any trouble believing that God created that? I don't. I've got no idea how it works. But God created that by saying, in his let there be a Ulysses butterfly, and I want to have some structural things involved in the scale, and there to be scales, by the way, on the back, on the wings of this butterfly, so that people can enjoy it and see it and know about my creative power. The amazing thing with the Ulysses butterfly is that on the other side of his wing, her wing, it's got the other type of colour. It's not the one that we're looking at here, the pigmented, no, but it's got the structural colour. Godwits. As we sit here, they are bare-legged and are about halfway through their project of putting on weight. They need to eat as their last journey saw them lose half of their weight. Now that's not bad if you're interested in losing some weight, just to take a journey and you've lost half of it. There's about 70,000 of those little birds that as we sit here today across the Tasman in New Zealand are eating furiously. Look at their journey that they took. You can see right up the top of the screen there where the red ellipse is. It's around Alaska. And it's particularly the, the, the bottom part there, just it's the, the Alaskan um, archipelago and a little bit further up, the, the Yukon Delta. And it's to this area that those, from this area that the Godwits, these 70 or so thousand of them, leave. And they do it all their trip in eight or so days. Eight, nine days. No stopping. They can't settle down on the water to have a bit of a breather because their feathers don't take a lot of water too well and they become waterlogged. And so they fly all the way down, non-stop, about 60 kilometres an hour, all the way down to New Zealand. So they're about halfway through their process of rebuilding. They love bristle worms. If you know anything about bristle worms, they love bristle worms. There's lots of them around estuaries and so on. And other things like bivalves and crabs, small bivalves and crabs. And they gradually build up their weight again. They lost fat as they were flying. And they even lost muscle tissue. So they sort of need both of the reserves from that, the fuel from both muscles and even fat, or fat and even muscles. Of course, that doesn't deplete their muscle tissue completely. And they don't need as much muscle because they're using up the fat, and so they're able to do with less muscle, and of course they become lighter, and that makes it easier when you're sort of about day eight and things are getting a little bit thin on the reserves. 
Is that just by chance? I don't think so. We have no idea how all this started in terms of did God have them going from the top of the world to the bottom of the world right at the beginning? I don't know. We don't know that. But they do do it now. And that is amazing. You saw on the map perhaps, maybe take it back, Linda, we might just see that map. At the end, around about in March, they, they travelled back up, but this time stopping on their way through on, East, on Eastern Asia until they get back up to uh, Alaska again. And there, the average God width that now weighs about, well, started out at least at 600 grams. He's put on some, some extra weight, but they then really beef up again. They breed. Breeding happens first of all, uh, and eating, of course, but then they really get into the eating to start the whole process again. Godwits fly extraordinary distances, yet they aren't particularly different from other migrating birds. It's just that they do everything really well, the very way that God designed that it should happen. David has this question for us. Psalm 8, verse 4. David asks God this question. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. I want you just in a couple of minutes to talk about the answer that you could give to David. You could say, David, this is my answer to your question. Talk about it just for a couple of minutes and then I'll get you to share what you think. All right. What do you think? Somebody like to call out an answer? Mm. Thanks, Georgia. So George is saying, we make something and it's valuable to us. God has made us. We are valuable to him. Anything else? What would we say to, in response to the question? Yes. So he created us in his own image? Yeah. Anything else? I loved you. I loved you. And if you look around me, around you, can't you, can you see the things that give you confidence in my creative ability? That's even here on the earth now, though you're struggling with these things and things that you stumble and fall with, that I have the power to change you if you will give your heart to me. And by the way, don't forget that at the end of time when Jesus returns, I'll recreate you. Is that good? It's just amazing. We've reached the end of our journey. God is able and he wants to change us to be more like him today and to be recreated when Jesus returns. This message was made available by the Barrel Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit barreladventist.church.
perfectly Who tells the vast oceans where to stop And the streams to go where it should Who feeds the birds their food today Who sheds the beams needed rain Oh Lord it's you it's you The colors of the rainbow paint your love The beauty of the sunshine tells me you're here I look up to the blue and infinite sky It's you, the colors of the rainbow.
Julie Hinsang speaks of you. Coming up next, Master Designer by Call to Praise. Nowhere to be found 
starving people live in poverty. Even nature cries and groans. Natural disasters, thousands die in agony. This is not how it was meant to be. But God is much nearer than we can imagine, and He's coming soon to take the pain away. Lord, I long for Your restoration when You make all things new. I can't wait for the day, sweet Jesus, when we will be together with you, with you in peace, with you in harmony, with you in joy, with you throughout eternity. Restoration by Carly Fletcher. Coming up next, Fountain View Academy will be singing, "I Sing the Mighty Power of God." I sing the mighty power of God. Thank you. 
Let's listen to Bill Ackland as he reads from his book, Talking with God. Today's prayer is entitled, To Appear or to Be. My dear Father, reader of the thoughts and intents of my heart, I pray that today I will so live that I shall not be afraid of people seeing the real me. I have just been admiring the flowers on my desktop. These had been set to cycle every five seconds, but that was not sufficient time to admire these gorgeous creations that seem to have been made as though creation week was right now. So I have a full minute now when I have time to admire their intricate beauty. These lovely flowers, Lord, show the same face in storm as in sunshine, dripping with raindrops or shining in the scintillating sun. But what do we humans so often do? Underneath the semi-permanent masks many wear, there are hurts, frustrations, disappointments, apprehensions, anxieties and fears. The mask stays on, though, and when someone asks, How are you? we often reply, Fine, thanks, when we are not fine at all. So I turn again to the flowers, Father, which remind me of the Master's admonition in another sense, to consider the lilies of the field. People have a right to know that what they see is what we are, especially when we are Christians. We shall not only be his in name, but in reality as well. May the Spirit motivate us to reveal a human flower face to the world, and in so doing make it easier for people to see the flower creator, our Redeemer, Lord and King. Shine through me, Lord, and through us all, to the glory of your name. Amen. To obtain your copy of Talking With God, written by Bill Ackland, give us a call in Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. our series, You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled, God Can Help You Fix Anything. At the beginning of 1957, I was asked to head up the Seventh-day Adventist school on the island of Abimama in the Gilbert Islands, which are now called Kitapas. And my wife and I arrived at the island on a small inter-island trading boat. We were met by a big muscular Tongan with a broad smile who introduced himself as Henry Moala, second in charge at the school. After we collected a few suitcases and hand luggage, Henry led the way to a beat-up old Morris truck. We threw our bags on the back and Henry hoisted himself into the driver's seat while my wife and I squeezed in on the passenger side. We were then off to the school, about three kilometres away. We would return to the ship later for the heavy boxes and crates. 
We hadn't gone far when Henry said, this truck has no brakes. I try not to use it any more than I have to, but I'm very nervous driving it. We'd almost reached the school when there was a sound like a gunshot. The old truck lurched to an unsteady stop. We all piled out to find that the driver's side front tyre had blown out, making a long tear in the side wall. The tyres were old and perished from the tropical heat, and we had no spare on board. We walked the short distance to the school and took a jack back to the truck. After removing the wheel, we rolled it back to the school workshop, such as it was, an open thatch roof structure, and I carefully extracted the tube. A 15 centimetre gash along the side made me think that tube had ended its useful life. But we don't have another inner tube, Henry groaned. How are we going to get your things from the wharf? At this point, it looked as though God would need to intervene in some unusual way if we were to complete the transfer of our boxes from the wharf to the school. So I prayed, Lord, you know this problem, and would you please show us what to do now? Immediately, my mind went back to a time in the late 1930s when, as a small boy, I'd been taken by my parents from Nelson to Dunedin in South New Zealand in an old Model T Ford motor caravan. We had so many blowouts that eventually my father had no spare tube and we were stranded miles from any garage with no way to get help. My father then collected dried grass from beside the road and stuffed the tyre as full as he could get it. Back on the wheel, that stuffed tyre took us quite some distance until we came to a garage. The only problem I recall about the incident was that the grass tended to move about in the tyre, so we had a quite bumpy ride. Now the Lord brought this experience back to my memory and also pointed out that there were plenty of coconut husks all around us, left over from the copra-making activities that go on all the time in Abamama. Coconut husks are the raw material that koya is made from and are tough and fibrous. Let's collect some coconut husks, I suggested to Henry. We can stuff them into one of these old tires and that should get us at least a load or two from the wharf. Henry was a bit uncertain about this new kind of inner tube, but he and some of the schoolboys soon had a pile of husks waiting for their new role as inner tube for the truck. I stuffed the husks in as tight as I could and then fitted the tyre back on the rim. We took the repaired wheel back to the truck, fitted it and let the jack down. There were whoops of delight all around when the tyre looked just as good as the others. I thanked God for the idea and we were ready to go again. Henry confided that he wasn't too comfortable about driving the truck, especially without brakes, so he insisted that I take over the task. Fortunately, Abamama is a coral atoll and the road is perfectly flat. Fortunately also, the handbrake did work reasonably well. So I cautiously started out on my first drive in the old truck. During the afternoon, we managed to bring the remainder of the cargo from the ship, but by the time we brought the last load, the coconut husks had moved around in the tyre, making the ride very bumpy indeed. 
it was obvious that husks were not a permanent solution to our problem. So there were two problems to fix, the brakes and the inner tube. I asked God for help and began looking around for some way of fixing the tube. There was an old, torn inner tube in the shed and a partly used tube of Bostic contact glue. But could a 15 centimetre gash be repaired with Bostic? I cut a large patch from the old tube and glued it over the gash in the damaged one. It seemed to stick fairly well, so we found an old tyre that seemed to be in better shape than the rest and fitted the repaired inner tube and tyre onto the rim. Cautiously, we pumped it up to see whether it would hold. It did, and served without trouble until we were able to get a new tube. Then I turned my attention to the brakes. I should say here that my previous experience at mechanical work consisted of nothing more than repairing my push bike and of replacing one rocker cover gasket in my Morris Minor in New Zealand over a year earlier. But after asking God to help, I tackled the brakes. When I dismantled the master cylinder, I found the trouble to be that the rubber washer was so worn that it allowed the fluid to leak past. Replacement parts would have to come by ship from Melbourne, and that would take many weeks. Looking carefully at the worn rubber part, I noticed that if its outer edges could be held firmly against the wall of the cylinder, the fluid might not be able to escape. So I found the lid of a tin can and cut it into a disc, with fingers protruding all around the circumference. It was made big enough to fit inside the rubber washer, with the fingers pushing the outer edges of the washer against the cylinder wall. This device was then inserted into the cylinder and the whole thing reassembled. And it worked. We had brakes again. I'm sure that God gives us the ideas we need to fix things when we ask him to. Sometime after the tube and brake incident, I decided that the school needed a lawnmower. The soil of the atolls is almost pure coral sand, but there is a little humus and if it rains often enough, which happens periodically, a coarse grass does grow over the ground. It looks rather untidy if not trimmed, and the islanders cut it with long machetes. But I thought the school students' time could be better used in other ways if we had a lawnmower. So I took stock of our resources. There were some pieces of angle iron and sheet metal lying around that could be made into a frame. In the workshop were a couple of old wartime Briggs and Stratton motors, about five horsepower I guessed. The bearings in one were worn and useless, but I hoped the other could be made to run again. There was an old circular saw spindle on the floor that could be pressed into service to mount a mower blade on, and a pair of old steel concrete mixer wheels, plus a pair of discarded baby pram wheels which could make the contraption mobile. Finally, a leaf from a jeep spring drilled in the centre could be mounted on the saw spindle as a blade. So to work I went, and the result was, believe it or not, 
a lawnmower, not unlike one of those old hater mowers that cut many an acre of lawn around the Pacific Islands in the days before Victor, Honda and Rover got into the act. Well, the mower did a noble task for some time, but one day, disaster struck. I was busy in the workshop while a student was using the lawnmower some 50 metres or so away. Suddenly, from the direction of the mower came a sharp metallic screech. I thought that the blade had hit some concrete or a piece of metal and expected to hear the mower start up again. But soon the student came into the workshop and said, the mower has run out of petrol and it won't start. I knew the mower couldn't be out of petrol as it had been filled only a few minutes earlier. So I went to investigate. I fitted the starting rope to the pulley and pulled firmly, expecting to feel the resistance of the compression. But the pulley turned freely. Something was seriously wrong. The motor was soon in the workshop, and when it was opened, it was indeed a sorry sight. The big end bearing had overheated, let go, and the inertia of the spinning blade kept the crankshaft turning as the connecting rod and piston fell downwards. The result was that the piston and rod had become a mass of small pieces of metal in the bottom of the engine. Inquiries revealed that the student had been holding the mower on an angle by pushing down on the handles and the oil had not reached the big end as it should. What to do now? Again, a prayer to the God who is always there brought the needed help. After cleaning up the engine, I could see that the damage had been limited to the piston and connecting rod, but incredibly, the crank pin was not badly scored. An examination of the spare engine revealed that its piston and connecting rod were in good condition, but there was no big end bearing shell in place. My colleague, the Pacific Islands veteran of many years' experience, Walter Ferris, looked at the bearing and said, I've got a Jeep bearing shell that I think I can cut to fit that bearing. Let me see what I can do. So it was that an hour or so later, Walter Ferris came in with two halves of a bearing shell that fitted pretty well around the crank of the Briggs motor. Jeep bearings were much bigger in diameter than Briggs big ends, and these cut-down shells had been formed into the tighter curve by hammering them into the seats. What was needed now was some way of grinding the two halves of the shell into shape against the crank pin so that the correct clearance could be made. Valve grinding paste would be no good because the particles were too big, creating too much clearance. But God was there again with the needed ideas. Why not toothpaste? The particles are fine enough. It would just take patience. So I spread toothpaste on the faces of the shell, set it in place over the crank pin, and gently tightened the bolts until I felt resistance. Then I worked the rod back and forth to grind in the shell. This process was repeated again and again until the bolts could be tightened right up without any binding of the shell on the pin and the motor gave many months of trouble-free service. I was not alone out on that small atoll, 
And whoever or wherever you are right now, you're not alone either. God is just a prayer away and he's waiting for you to realise your need of him and call to him for help. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3avianaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456. May God bless you. And remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.